there, friends. Welcome to Having a Blast. This is a pop punk and emo and indie and post-hardcore and probably many other genres at some point podcast. It's quickly becoming lots of things. I sometimes interview people and I'm going to be doing that today. I'm really excited because I'm going to be interviewing Brian Zapp. He was the guitarist for The Dangerous Summer from the inception of the band to 2012. He helped write and record the albums Reach for the Sun and War Paint as well as their first EP. If you could only keep me alive and I remember this EP because that's where I discovered The Dangerous Summer. The Permanent Rain was in regular rotation back in the early streaming days, and we talk about that a little bit. He is currently recording and writing songs for the new project Violette with his partner Chelsea, and it's great stuff. Female-fronted band. Be sure to check them out. They just released a single called Burning Up, and it's on all the streaming platforms. Really dig it. We talk a lot about that. We also talk about transitioning away from The Dangerous Summer and into his own projects. Before Violette was a thing, he recorded a record under the name Dreamcatcher with the same singer with Chelsea, and we talk about the transition there as well. Really appreciate his time today. I've been a fan of Brian's guitar work and his songwriting for a really long time now, so it was really exciting to get to talk to him and pick his brain a little bit. We also talk a lot about just being a person on a mission and having drive and tenacity and making your dreams come to fruition and seeing projects through until the end. Before we had this conversation, we were talking online and Brian mentioned that he hopes to be doing a lot more production in the future. He's producing bands, he's producing artists and helping compose songs and construct songs and he ultimately wants to be known more for that moving forward and not just the guitarist from The Dangerous Summer. So I just wanted to mention that as well. And this is the exciting part about talking to Brian and several people like him. This is chronicling the evolution of a musician, somebody that's not just a musician, but also a producer, a composer. And now Brian's going to be using his experience and his tools and his toolkit to help propel new artists and new bands. And that's just really cool to hear about. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Zapp of Violette. So I'm held my hope in what you I just tried You know I've lost a lot I won't let this die You know I've got this friend to be me I'm just feeling of the reason not to fear the sky I, hey, You can hear me all right? I can, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Great. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Thanks for having Happy. me. Tuesday? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. dude. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. When I first thought about doing this music podcast, you were actually on my list because we've had a couple conversations before online and stuff. And I thought, yeah, that'd be, if we could make it work, that'd be really cool to talk to Brian, talk about all the things he's got going on now. And I know we've kind of had a couple conversations regarding health and wellness and fitness and all that stuff too. So it's, it's cool when those two things kind of cross over. It's cool when there's the parallels with the music, but also with the stuff that I'm doing now. So yeah, man. So you're in Maryland, right? Yeah. How's the weather there today? It's a little chilly. It's supposed to snow tomorrow. So we'll see. I think we're supposed to get some snow maybe next week. It's been kind of unusually warm here. I'm in Lawrence right now. I live in Lawrence and I work in Kansas City. Yeah, it was 60 degrees the other day. It was really nice out for December. It's usually kind of gray and cold around this time of the year. Yeah, I think it was 60 yesterday, and then today it's in the 30s. Oh, wow. Okay, so a big change. We get big fluctuations here. I feel like it's kind of climate change has taken over. <laughs> Last year, we didn't get any snow whatsoever. We usually get like two or three little, like at least one big snowstorm here. But And you didn't last year? No, not one. Wow. Yeah. That is unusual, right? It really is. Well, we, we usually get like a late snow. We actually get like usually get a... um a uh, big snowfall in March, but we, yeah, nothing. And but it's almost happens. eerie, you know, like yeah. you're expecting it to happen, but then it doesn't happen. We've had some really light winters over the last couple decades. And then par for the course, usually we're going to get about the same, anywhere between six and a dozen snowfalls over the course of the winter time. Sometimes it'll snow a bunch and it just stays cold. So the snow just kind of hangs out for a few weeks, but yeah. I haven't been to Maryland in 16 years. It's been a while. Uh, played out here a lot? We played out there a little bit. So I was in a band back in the early, early 2000s called Game Time. 
and we we toured the east coast i believe three times like three full legit east coast tours and maryland was definitely a stop at least a couple of the times that we went out there yeah and i think i remember having a good time at the venue that we played it's all kind of a blur to me now I remember bands and I remember where bands were from and I remember playing with those bands, but I don't really remember specific venues. Yeah. Yeah. Maryland has but, a lot of, a lot of bands from, from that old scene. Um, yeah. 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 Who, who else from Maryland? I know isn't all time low from yeah. Maryland. Okay. Yeah. All time low. Back then we had a huge local scene from anywhere from like 2000, like that time where, where you were touring until about 2010 there were so many bands and, and it's kind of dropped off there used to be this one big venue out here called record theater and it's in towson maryland and they closed down and turned into a nightclub and now they're turning it back into record theater so oh cool so yeah some of that. yeah part two yeah. we kind of had like a big drop off of venues and and some other ones popped up so yeah it's the same thing here we've had a whole assortment of venues come and go and some pretty pivotal mid-level sized clubs that have closed. The Beaumont Club was pretty famous in Kansas City. I saw hundreds of shows there probably, and they closed a few years ago. Now it's a restaurant, and there's not too many all-ages clubs in Kansas City, and the ones that are open now, I say open in quotations because of COVID, we're all kind of wondering if they're going to make it because I know they're really struggling, but they're a little bit smaller. That's the thing. Like There's a few extra venues in Kansas City, but they were all really tiny. And like you said, there's been a couple that have kind of sprouted up over the last few years. Yeah, but yeah. Lot of venues are struggling a lot because they, they were struggling before all this and now they're now they're really struggling. I played a show with um Violette who's who I'm playing with now at um mm-hmm. this place called Soundstage and the guys there are great. It was like a socially distanced, like everyone was seated, had to wear a mask inside and only like twenty five percent capacity for like a what you know, normally is like 800 to, they like can do different, you know, sizes of shows, but it's like eight to 1200, I think, cap room. Okay. It was like, there was maybe like 50 people in there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Different vibe, right? Yeah. Way different. It felt like a practice really, you know, but sure. what it is. Was it kind of a practice for you guys? Yeah. That was like, um, that was her first show as her solo project. So, okay. Um, yeah. We didn't have a drummer either. So we, we got um, John Van Dyne from Cruiser. Do you know that band? Yeah, they're great. Uh, they, they, toured, they did a tour of the 1975. So like he was telling us all these crazy stories about, you know, touring with them, which is, you know, it's a huge, that's a huge act to tour yeah, with. It's massive. I mean, they're one of the biggest, I think, most important bands of the yeah, day so, at the moment. Yeah. And, and we have like a new like live rig with like, with in-ear monitors and that I, that I helped put together. So it was like, yeah, it was definitely a practice because it was like, it was new for that. We, you know, I have a whole new guitar setup. Everything is like integrated so that there's no, other than the drums and the vocals, there's no noise on stage. Nice. And I'm basically, and it's just a three piece. So I kind of run tracks, play guitar and play keyboards all at the same time. That's rad, man. That's a lot to juggle on stage. Yeah, know? yeah, a little bit. I mean, it it's not for me. It's like for her stuff. So, and everything we produce is like, you know, back in the day, like we used to be like, so against backing tracks and stuff. But I remember we did a tour with like the morning of, remember that band? I do. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause I literally just had a conversation with uh, the singer. I follow him. Oh, on really? Justin or, or, um, they had two girl. singers, right? Didn't they have two? Yeah. yeah. They had a guy and a girl. I don't remember the, the girl's name they, they were such they were such good people all of them yeah um yeah yeah, yeah. I, I love Great with them. is it amir amir was he the guitar player or no he's the bassist oh okay i thought he was the singer that's my bad i yeah okay he's so like, the bassist amir he's the only original member or okay him, rob and chris were like the original members and they weren't the singer or the they were like the guitarists and the bassist interesting okay this is all coming together for me. it's so crazy this is i mean not about me it's about you <laughs> but what the what? reason i say that is because he actually he started following me because he knew of my old band and i thought that was so incredibly random yeah just that he knew because i remember listening to the morning of and really enjoying that band and he said that he just he enjoyed our stuff we were a smaller band we were unsigned and he said that he liked our band and he just 
looked for us online. So he started following us, but I, I've, I've been following him and kind of what he's doing. And he seems really active in the, the music scene and things like that. He's doing a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. seems like a really nice guy. Yeah. There's all these weird satellite connections with all these different musicians and things. That's cool though. That's rad that you're producing Violet. And is that your partner? Chelsea, is that her name? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Dude, the, every single song is amazing. I love it. Dude. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah. We, we, um, we produced the, like, I kind of like half produced those ones and Micah from there for tomorrow produced them. We went down to Florida and actually co-wrote those songs with him. Very cool. Um, Another great band. Like they're really for tomorrow. Cool Yo, yeah, they're, they're awesome. And, and Chris plays drums on all of it. Obviously it's pop. So it's like, you know, me and Chris have like a, crazy way of working together we'll be like at his house and we just set up very minimal mic setups and then he'll just record himself just jamming to the song basically in hundreds of different ways and then we'll go in and mangle it up and chop it up and do all kinds of weird stuff to it so that's like that's kind right. of my style like it's always been my style like even when i was playing guitar and you know in Dreamcatcher and dangerous summer to like to mess with things you know to absolutely try to, yeah yeah. That's one of the most fun things about recording. It's sort of like, for lack of a better term, creating art, but I think of it sort of like you're making brush strokes. And mm -hmm. then you know how sometimes a painter will, they'll start out by laying a bunch of tape all over a canvas and then they'll paint right. all over it. And they kind of get the vibe of what they want to do, but then they pull the tape off and it creates these sharp edges and these straight lines. Yeah. That's kind of how I've always envisioned it when I look at the tracks and I'm kind of manipulating things and you're cutting sections out of maybe a guitar line and then copying and pasting it somewhere else and just kind of like playing with the possibilities of it. Yeah. Is that something well, that you I do? I my guitar like as a tool now. It's, it's, there's never like guitar all over a song anymore. It's like I'll put it in a spot where I know that you'll be able to notice it. I mean, the song that we just put out, Burning Up, that was one that I like heavily produced. And it came from a demo where it was kind of like an ambient demo. Like if I showed it to you, you would have no idea that it was like the same song that I <laughs> chopped up these guitars and like put these little like vocal samples over it and then put it to like a totally different tempo, a totally different time. It was like in a three, four time signature and has like kind of that 80s vibe. And then I put like some bass over it some like bass arpeggiator thing. So yeah. it was like, and it was a, the demo was like a fully, the guitars sounded so full that I was like, there's no way you can just recreate this. Like the only way to do it is to use the demo and chop it up and, and make it like just weird. And yeah, but it works. Like, that song is great. I was listening to it on repeat yesterday and oh, yeah. you're right. It, def it definitely has that eighties flair, that tears for fears kind of yeah. vibe, but the recording still sounds so modern and new and fresh. Yeah, that, that was like the moment I kind of realized like I can create the sounds better than like a producer that I like we can now produce the sounds right. So because when we went down to Micah's like a couple of the songs, that one and hell, all the guitars on it were, were came from my original demo. We He just dropped them in and then we kind of layered over the drums and recreated drum parts and stuff. But because I would have done it in like GarageBand at the time because we actually did those songs about two years ago almost wow. <laughs> yeah that's surprising like, we, we uh released one of them as Dreamcatcher, and then kind of reworked it we having some yeah we were having like little member members of the band kind of issues so we decided to make this change where we were going to focus everything on chelsea and she was going to do exactly the music that she wants to make and we were going to take even my subjectiveness out of it and and put me in as a producer and i still play live so i mean it still feels like a band because yeah. because of that but instead of us having to like debate all the little things she just gets the final say and i can just i can just be me and actually like opened up a lot of doors musically for us creatively it just removes some of those constraints right and you have a little bit more freedom and autonomy in it in, in a certain yeah. segment of it the production and the arrangement of the songs and maybe writing as well and you guys have already established this relationship so it makes sense that you guys can work together and you've already done it with Dreamcatcher. You've already released a lot of music under that name. So yeah. I think of it more as, I was kind of thinking it as sort of like a brand shift 
And yeah. there's a lot of emphasis on the, just looking at, I was going through your Facebook last night and I was seeing all of the visuals associated with Violette mm-hmm. and how you've got Chelsea front and center, but also each photograph is colorful and there's a lot of personality, but it works and flows nicely with all of the artwork for the singles that you guys have released. So there's yeah. that aesthetic component as well. And I think that's a great idea. I mean, it's combining those two elements. The music definitely speaks for itself, but it has a vibe and a feel with it too, and a brand. Yeah, Is that I mean, something that you guys are going for? Or are you guys going for kind of a vibe in a sense where this becomes an art project that has not only sounds associated with it, but a specific look? Yeah, yeah, definitely. She's always been really good at that stuff. And I never was. She's got the vision of what she wants to do. And it just so happened, you know, it's just some crazy lightning strike stroke of luck that I just happened to, basically anything I do just happens to be her sound, you know, with like the exception of a few things. And, and that was one of the things that it kind of opened, opened me up as a producer, like to, to go at this as more of a producer thing. It allowed me to start to do my own thing on the side as well. But I mean, like her, her aesthetic, yeah, like we have always gone for like the darker, like more emo kind of sound and and look and we just wanted something that was gonna like put her right at the forefront i think one of the mistakes like dreamcatcher made especially way in the beginning it came like just as i was leaving dangerous summer and i felt at the time i felt like i had to help them but it was like such a it was such a big mistake because it made it seem like it was like my side project or something when really the actual situation was that I was joining another band with people. And because they hadn't been around for a while, that I was the face of it, you know? Uh, yeah. it, it just kind of came came off that way. And ever since that first EP that we did, which I'm uh, super proud of, that was kind of like our first stab at like trying to produce ourselves. We just used like an engineer and we kind of fell short. And then we ended up going to Paul Levitt again, you know, who did all the Dangerous Summer stuff at the time yeah. and I really trusted him. And we just, it was just a, you know, it was a weird time because like there was, we came to a lot of realizations that she's the front person, she's the vision of the band and we can't have her being compared to someone who has like such a big following all the time. Yeah. You know, we have to like build it on our own. So we started to do that with Dreamcatcher and we've rebranded a couple of times, but it just that along with all the member changes and stuff, it just didn't work out. Yeah. So yeah. That's understandable definitely. i've been there with other projects and things yeah it's difficult when you're trying to navigate the element of keeping people in the band and and working with different personalities it may just be a better situation where it's it's predominantly you doing some of the producing some of the writing and then chelsea is the face of it and kind yeah. of the brand of it yeah i think that's great well, and i really loved the last record that you guys put out in 2017 hold your love with Dreamcatcher. Oh, yeah. that record is yeah. just great i still revisit it a lot yeah, that was like our first, that was such a hard record to make, to be honest with you. It took like three years because of all the member changes. There's probably like three different drummers involved in writing a bunch of those songs, three or four. So we have- That's tough, yeah. but it's almost liberating now in a sense. It's freeing that you can have somebody like Chris from touring with Dashboard now, I know that. and But he kind of like a studio drummer, he can come in and help you guys flesh out an idea, put some really good professional sounding drums on a track, but you don't necessarily have to be tied to him as him as a member of the band, right? Right, like yeah. Move forward, you can still move ahead. Yeah, yeah, we came to that conclusion that it was just gonna be like a collaborative experience with whoever we work with. That's um, smart, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, and Chris, and Chris just works a lot like me where he, we came up with this kind of thing where we had to like, we always say like drop the ego because there's so many times where you're like, this has to be like something or you get like the, the demo-itis where you are stuck to something. Yeah, you get but, attached to it. Yeah, I mean, Chris works a lot like me where he'll just bang out a bunch of stuff and then you'll find something good in it. And then you can just travel down the rabbit hole. And that's part of the, the creative process that, has really opened up. And I, I feel like we were constrained to so many rules in all of my previous bands. It was all these rules and we have to sound like this and it has to be, if it's gonna be professional, it means you have to do it at a studio and you have to redo it and not do the demos and, and all that stuff. But I feel like all the stuff we're doing now sounds more pro than I've ever done. I mean, we, we just recorded a new EP that we're gonna mm-hmm. probably start dropping songs like in 
I think February or something. But that one I we produced completely in this um the studio that I'm in right now, which is in our apartment. So like I've set that's up awesome, man. Yeah, like I've set up this whole we have this really nice, beautiful room that's still just got like a vibe to it. And you know, it's just super inspiring to be in here. That that's one of the things too, is like at our old house, we were out in the suburbs in like a townhouse and our setup was like down in a basement with like we tried to like vibe it out with like little cool lights and stuff like that. But like just being in a basement in a townhouse is not that inspiring. And with this room, it's sunlight and big ceilings. And it just feels like something, a place you'd want to write music in. It's comfortable, you know, you have to be. Yeah. It's got a feel to it. Yeah. And it's amazing what the environment can do to a recording. Right. Yeah. I think that can really affect things. That's cool. And yeah, everything sounds amazing. It sounds fresh and modern. I think you've got a good ear production wise on just layering sounds and tweaking sounds. Yeah. That's the fun part, right? That's part of the no rules. There's no rules to this whole art thing. Art is completely subjective and we should try to like push the envelope a little bit, I think in certain regards with certain art projects and things. And I think you guys are doing that, but it also, it also falls right in line with, I think it's relevant to what's happening right now in music and modern culture and and that sort of thing as well. To take a step back, because I'm just kind of curious about you and sort of your history and your trajectory. What was like your first musical memory or what were some early pivotal influences? Oh, man. I mean, I grew up as a 90s mainstream. Anything anything that was done in the 90s that was mainstream, like I was super into when I was really young. But what kind of like drove me into like the emo pop punk scene my first band was with this dude. I, li- I lived in Denver at the time. And well, I had just moved out here, but because my parents got divorced, but my dad lived in Denver. So I would go out there for summers and I was in a band out there with this kid, this kid, Andy. And I was into, you know, like on the one side, it was Alanis Morissette and Cheryl Crow. And on the other side, it was Metallica and Nirvana, you know? And so I didn't know much else than other than what was played on the radio. And then- sure. And obviously, like, I knew Blink-182, but, like, my dad was always, like, that's, that's like, sissy stuff, you know? Like, so I, I just never was into it. And then this when I started playing with this guy, he was super into Blink-182, Sum 41, all these, like, up-and-coming kind of pop-punk, Green Day, all that. And that got me, like, super into that. And then there was another guy at my dad's house. He lived across the street from us. And this guy was, like, scary, like, emo, hardcore dude with, like, the tight pants and the van, like, the black jeans and the vans and stuff like that. And I Mm. went over and hung out with him once, and he showed me, like, oh, man, it was, like, a huge awakening for me. Like, he showed me, like, Thrice and Rufio specifically. And I was so late to the game with, like, the emo stuff. I think I was, like, 15. I'm like, I don't know how old you are. I was born in 87. I was just like late to the game. Artist in the Ambulance was already out. So like, and the newer Rufio record. So I was like super into those. And then I went and traveled back in time to like their older records and really got into like that kind of stuff. So perhaps I suppose and Illusion of Safety and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm 36, by the way. Like that stuff like really got me into like, I was a drummer when I was young. Um, I took drum lessons all the time. And I, and I was like hooked, like in my first band, I was the drummer. So I wasn't really interested in playing guitar until I moved, like, till I started like joining bands in Maryland. That was when I like kind of figured out like, oh, I'm a little bit, I know I was better at guitar naturally. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't as naturally good, gifted at the drums, but that kind of helped me learn what is needed on a guitar, you know? Did the guitar speak to you? I mean, it w- Two bands that you mentioned, Rufio and Thrice, those are two very guitar-centric, guitar-heavy bands, especially back then, you know? I think first time I heard Rufio, I was immediately hooked to the guitars. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I was like, I was like, I was playing guitar. I thought I could be a drummer in a band. So I was like so focused like on that. And from the moment I started playing drums, I feel like ever since I was like 10, like I knew that I was gonna do this like for the rest of my life somehow some you know some way it was weird like there was never like a moment where I thought anything different like I was like there's some way that I'm gonna figure out how to do this you know and there was no like moment where I was like you know like and I didn't even join TDS or have like even a chance at doing anything with it as a career until I was 18 or 19 so sure it's weird like I just didn't have any any question about it I just kept like meeting people and and doing stuff but it was a transition from drums to guitar Um, okay 
but it gave you that filter that lens yeah. through which to look at music you could look at it with a drummer's eyes as well as the guitar players which i think gives you a, a distinct advantage as a producer as a songwriter too i'm sure it did then but i like how you had no hesitation you just knew you were going to be you were a man on a mission you were going to be in a band and you were going to yeah. be in a, in a yeah, successful band yeah even if like all my high school bands are like nothing to talk about you know like even um our band before Dangerous Summer, I was in a band with, with Tyler, who was the Dangerous Summer's drummer. And mm-hmm. like, it was so bad. <laughs> but like, but I, I remember I recorded one of our songs and that was like my first like shot at like, and the other thing was like, when I was a kid was uh, my dad was so interested. He, he would get guitar lessons. He was the one who got me the drum lessons. So he was like, he pushed me a lot. And he actually like bought like a whole recording setup. So for back in the day, it was like, a little like standalone recorder thing with like some monitors and some microphones, which like today is like basically worthless. But for back then, like I would play the drums and then I would write guitar over it. So like I have a history of being able to work alone. So like, yeah. So part of like when I, when COVID hit, I started making beats at home just for fun, just to see like if I could learn how to mix enough to like Mm -hmm. to be able to like produce my own music so like I just started doing that just for fun and earlier in the year uh, a young lady hit me up her project's called Sister Teeth and she wanted to do like a collaboration so I did it with her for free she sent me like um, a synth and a vocal like a song that's fully written but it's just a synth and a vocal Mm -hmm. and I layered over it with all the guitars drums everything and produced it from like start to finish it took me a long time but it took me like about a month or two but mm-hmm. it was just like me like working through like, okay, like how am I going to professionally produce? And that, yeah, yeah you're just that developing was, like, your system. Yeah. Yeah. Like th- as bad as this whole situation is, it gave me like the chance to like, just stay home and like only focus on one thing, even if it seemed worthless at the time that like, I don't know, I was just driven by the whole, the whole COVID situation. I, I, don't, I feel like there's two different types of people and some people like got super depressed and like did nothing. And I did gain a bit of weight, but <laughs> so I was like doing nothing but sitting at home because there was nothing to do until we moved here. Was, so now yeah. I'm going like, nice long walks and, you know, trying to be healthy again, but that Good I was, you, man. I yeah. think we all gained a little bit of weight. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of COVID. Right. Weight. Yeah. I think that's just to be expected. It's funny. Cause I've been mentioning to my clients that I work with online and in person I've been telling them to give themselves a little bit of grace when it comes to COVID because we all just collectively went through something that we may look back and view it as something that was almost traumatic in a certain sense for a lot of us. That doesn't necessarily mean we didn't use the time wisely. As you said, you use this time as an opportunity, which I think is fantastic. I think that's the absolute best way you can look at a situation like this because Stoic philosophy in a nutshell is we can't control what happens to us, but we can always control how we react to what's happening. Yeah. I think it's a testament to you. I mean, even just listening to you talk about how you were 18 years old and you were driven on a mission and you didn't hesitate for a second to do music full time and do it in a significant way. I think that speaks to your personality. The fact that you saw COVID as an opportunity instead of just this total liability and this total travesty that which is probably the case for a lot of people and to varying degrees you know i don't i don't want to necessarily be insensitive to somebody that maybe lost their livelihood or something and i know you're not either but i think it's important to to assess things the way you just did to look at the situation and say okay this sucks what can i do about it that will hopefully help me in the long run or how can i make the best of a bad situation or a less than ideal situation at the moment? How can I capitalize on this extra free time that I have? Yeah. I mean, that goes for anyone who's like trying to start a business. Maybe like, maybe you're doing stuff like aside from your job. Absolutely. And all of a sudden you just have all this time on your hands. Like I would like, I'm the type of person that just goes crazy. And I remember like, Chelsea wasn't trying to write at the start of it too. So I was going nuts because I was like, I need to write music and I need to do it somehow, some way. Yeah. So that was just like a good outlet. Like I started like a SoundCloud where I'll just throw, you know, some hip hop beats and some trap beats. And, and I was just messing with that and building loops and stuff like that. And that's when I started making my own samples too. So I have my own sample packs that I, that I'm putting out as well. And like, that's I'm right. still like working on that, you know, like getting better at it, but like 
that's a fun thing for me to do too. That's on my off time. You know, when Chelsea needs like a break from like all the writing, because that that happens with people that write songs. It's different than someone like me who just composes. I could just compose all day, you know, just mm-hmm. send me whatever you got and I'll just make anything over it. And like, I have so much fun doing this that I had such a hard time t- like turning it into a business too. I'm still like struggling with it. I just did my first hanging, mixing, producing job. So like, that's, you know, that's big too. Like as soon as this new Violet record drops and then I worked with, so that Sister Teeth project I was telling you about, I did that free song for her and then she came back wanting three more singles done so i did those and and actually was able to charge for it that's so, amazing dude congratulations yeah and so now it's just about replicating that right yeah just replicating exactly. that, working with more people and that's the thing i think it's also a testament the fact that you did the song for free for her initially because you wanted to get your feet wet right you wanted to create the thing not just to prove it to yourself that you can do it, because I think you knew deep down you'd figure it out. You would troubleshoot enough until you got something that you were proud of. And that's all art is really, but you wanted to establish yourself. And now you have this product that you can put out there confidently and say, hey, let's do this. I feel confident in my skills. We can work together and we can create something that's amazing. It's kind of like when I hear Mark Trombino talk about clarity. Mm-hmm. the album Clarity from Jimmy World. He said that yeah. for the next three or four years, every single person that came to him or every band that came to him was, well, we want to sound like Clarity. <laughs> and well, it's like... Not Jimmy World, so... <laughs> yeah, and then he recorded Bleed American for free, essentially, or he produced it for free. Yeah, And it's because he knew that I'm going to do some work here initially and it's going to really serve me in the long run. And I think you're doing the exact same thing. You're proving yeah. yourself. yeah. All the, anyone I've taken advice from that's, that seems like worth it has always said you're, you're better off doing things for free and learning how to do it. Because when I did her three songs, I was able to do them in, a, in an amount of time. I was able to work out all the kinks with the free one that I did for her to where I was able to get her other three songs done in a timely manner that made like what I charged her worth it. Absolutely, man. Dude, I love this trajectory that you're talking about. There's a sequence here. And I think there's just a, a massive amount of value that I think creatives can get out of this. It was the same when I first started training people in person. The first thing I was told was, okay, you need to get a friend or a family member in shape because they're going to be the ones who are going to prove that you can actually get people results yeah. and you want to do it for free. So you're going to do it for free and it's an investment in your long-term future. Well, and that's exactly that, what I did. And it was, so it was in the fitness world. That's the, that's the thing. If you, cause most like personal trainers, they have no, like if you have one at a gym, they have literally no control over what you're eating or, you know, like you can, if, unless you're like going to them every single week and that's a lot of money too, sure. to do a personal trainer that's at a gym, you know, that's not a lot of people can do that. You know? Right. Yeah. It's a luxury for sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just a short term investment. Cause I think a lot of times people, they get really defensive when you tell them to do things for free. They might say to themselves, well, I'm not going to work for free. You know, why would I work for free? I'm trying to get paid to do this. But what they don't recognize is sometimes you have that short-term thinking where, okay, I'll do this for free initially to get my feet wet, practice my craft, learn my systems. And then you have a viable product after that, that could pay dividends for the rest of your life. You're going to be producing for many years to come. And it's going to start with this year and you're going to look back on 2020 as a year that was probably crazy and weird. But at the same time, it was that year where you had the beginning of exponential growth because the few singles that you produced with Violette and Sister Teeth, the ROI on those was exponential. It compounded over time. And that's just really cool, man. And I just, I mean, I look up to producers like like Josh from Fanagram. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so into like, uh, like I'm really, I haven't been in like the pop punk emo world forever. I listen to like the craziest, you know, I, I don't know, I guess it's not crazy, but it's like kind of alternative pop music, you know, like yeah. whatever the 1975 has created that they haven't created it. It's been around forever, like all alternative pop, but like it's, that's like the music that I listen to now. Fanagram, the Japanese, like all the dirty hit stuff, Japanese house. Yeah. There's a band Muna that I love. And Dude, all I love it all. Have a producer like in the band, basically, like yeah, uh, yeah, like someone that's like 
within the within the band that is able to like hold their own in a studio you know because i think that like you need that i feel like back in the day like when when dangerous summer like didn't know when we didn't know anything right we would go into the studio and stuff would just be told to us and stuff would just be done for us and like yeah. There's something that's like so unfulfilling about that. And now with technology and like how everyone basically has a studio in their house, it was kind of a perfect time for me because I can be like that second year for people that are producing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a a versatile and impactful thing to have somebody that does have a producer ear in the band, a band like Green Day. And I just use them just because they're an easy example. But they they did so many records with Rob Cavallo all those years. And now they're more or less picking producers that they want to work with. And they're also producing a lot of stuff themselves. Their last record, not the one that Butch Walker did, but Revolution Radio. I think they produced that themselves. They just had an engineer come in. Yeah, And I'm sure at this point in their career, even with working with the guy like Butch Walker, who probably gave them a lot of new fresh ideas, they still had a lot of input in the compositions of the song, the way they wanted it to sound, the grittiness of the tones, getting those tones themselves. They may not have had to rely on engineers and producers to even get those sounds, or they could just explain what they were after from a producer standpoint. So yeah, that's amazing. And I love all those artists that you mentioned, Fanagram, especially their last record was just incredible. Yeah. I love all that stuff. And I think, I think Violet, Dreamcatcher, it definitely has that same vibe, but it still stands on its own as well. And I think it's probably a good thing that you come from the scene that you did because there's so much pop associated with that too and clever wordplay and things like more or less emo lyrics and pop punk big choruses that kind of soar and the composition of the songs having a more subdued verse into a chorus that really lifts and really just pops out of the headphones yeah Yeah, i mean dynamics for me is a huge thing like i feel like a lot of the records we did my favorite dangerous summer record that you're probably going to ask this anyway i didn't know but uh, it was war paint actually because it was way more dynamic and I was like coming into my own as a guitarist. So mm-hmm. like in Reach for the Sun, the, the one that everybody like kind of talks about, the recording of it is so flat. There's no, this is comes back to like the no ego thing because there was no moment where, where a band member wanted to back off. AJ's screaming in the microphone, Tyler's banging on the drums, you know, Cody's ripping the guitar chords, but there's never... A moment where like you can make those big moments sound even bigger by like, dropping a little bit you know like dropping out yeah and, yeah like, absolutely we had a lot more of that you know i felt like i felt like the big moments seemed bigger and the little moments seemed the quieter moments like they were more prominent you know absolutely yeah and war paint i mean what a phenomenal record the guitars especially that was one of the things that i always really loved about the dangerous summer mm-hmm especially on that record, particularly on that record and in on the golden record as well. But Warpaint specifically, I think there's just so many nuanced guitar lines and I'm sure you had a lot to do with that. I can tell just from even listening from your new projects that I can hear the dynamics. I can hear the layers that you do with some of the sounds and the panning and things like that and the soundscapes that you're creating. And that's what I felt like Warpaint was. There were soundscapes with the guitars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what's funny with that record was like, that was the one where, you know, we were in the studio for three months straight or something. Like, because that was when, so when we were first writing it, Tyler was in the band and then he had quit. So we had no drummer and we had like half the songs written. So we got Spencer from Hidden in Plain View to come in. So we actually wrote the record with him in the studio. And once we had like the drums and kind of like the rough guitars done, AJ didn't have any lyrics. So he had to write the whole thing. Like, so we had like almost two studios set up and I was going from like the record from back to front in another room, recording my own guitars basically. And he was in like the main room recording the vocals. So it was weird. It was a weird record to record because it sounds like cohesive. It wasn't written like Reach for the Sun was. Reach for the Sun was written in my house, like in a basement. And everyone was there and everyone contributed like every moment together. Mm -hmm. Like we've made all the decisions like together, 
Whereas like War Paint was like everyone was able to be creative in their own way, in their own like corner of the studio, which was just it was kind of nuts, you know, and it was just the three the three guys. So Wow. Yeah, it was it so was just Spencer a, it was from a, Hidden and Plain View played drums. That's that's incredible. I didn't know that. He's an incredible drummer. Yeah, and we recorded those drums like live, like so we'd have like the guitars set up and like direct in and we would just play like along with him basically. Just the parts. Yeah, it was wow. it was a weird record to record, to be honest with you. Like, I, w- I wouldn't recommend that way of doing it with a band, you know? It was a strange time for the band, for sure. Like, just, like, relationship-wise and everything. Yeah. But, but I found myself, like, in a corner of the studio with nobody looking at me, and I was, like, more creative than ever, you know? Yeah. It just comes back to, like, all the things I said about, like, me being able to work on my own. This whole me being, like, kind of producer thing, like, it worked out this year specifically because I'm not allowed to have anyone in the studio because like sister teeth, she basically sent me her songs and I've never even met her before. It's a completely remote production. And I told her like what to, she recorded herself. I told her exactly like how to record what to record. She told me like what mic she was using and, and it was all good from there. Like it was all just, she wow. send the tracks over and I would just mix. So we're in a new era, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Where you can but, where you can send stuff to, you know, remotely and it, you can do the majority of the mixing and the composing in the box. Yeah. I'm assuming you do, I'm assuming, you probably have some outboard gear, but I would imagine you do most of it in the box, right? I do not have any outboard gear. Completely <laughs> in the box, but I have... That's sick, dude. Twin. I love that. Dude, the Apollo Twin works wonders when it comes to that. And I only have like the basic stuff, like what comes with it. And... Yeah, it works wonders. And I have just one mic. It's like the slate modeling mic. Mm-hmm. So I got like I got like the best in the box stuff that you can get. And I have a Kemper too. So that's my guitar amp now. I sold cool. all my most of my pedals. That's so rad, man. I like that. I like these very minimalistic setups when it comes to recording because I think one of the most difficult things for musicians is establishing a quick workflow when it comes to getting ideas down. That was the thing I always struggled with. In the early 2000s, if we wanted a demo, we had to buy a bunch of equipment, teach ourselves how to record, which was really difficult, or we had to pay a lot of money to go demo somewhere at a studio. And we had a friend who was a little bit older. He was in his 30s and we were in our early 20s. And he had a bunch of gear. He had been recording since the 80s. He was in like hair metal bands and things like that. And he allowed us to come in and do these really cheap demos But even then, sometimes they would kind of fall flat. They wouldn't really paint the vision that we were after. So we'd have to really, really spend a lot of time on it. And it took a lot of time. And we essentially played shows on the same EP for almost four years. And it was just really difficult. So I love the idea now where you have minimalistic setups, but you can create amazing projects with it and amazing sounding songs and albums. I just think that's so cool. a long way for sure. Yeah, like we're never able to like demo on our own. Like we had a buddy that had like a recording setup for for war when we were doing war paint. We actually did some demos with him just for free, and that's actually where we recorded like the the acoustic versions of Reach for the Sun. Mm-hmm. We did it at his studio, and it was just like a buddy's house. And what was funny was like some of the war paint demos almost sound better than the record, and it wow. was like it, it was weird because like he had like you know, a minimalist setup and we didn't consider it to be like a professional studio, but yeah. like we would come up with, it was just random for just randomly come up with good mixes, but I was never able to like demo us um, our, on our own. But when Dreamcatcher was a band, we demoed everything and I would like use Log- I think Logic Pro 8. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was before it looked like, before it looked like GarageBand, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember. Like, yeah. So th- that was kind of like my first shot at like trying to, you know, produce stuff, but it never sounded great. You know, it was just, it was always like just practice. I'm just a late bloomer when it comes to producing. Like some guys, Paul, who we recorded with, like he was recording people really well, you know, back in like 2000 when he was in his, you know, he was probably a teenager when he started recording, you know. Late teens. Yeah. yeah. And he's just all yeah. about it. And he's all about the outboard gear. It's just like the time when the times changed for this minimalist thing, it was just perfect for me because I was never able to afford any of that stuff. You know, I was only able to afford like the cheapo stuff that you couldn't, I was always like 
kind of ghetto rigging recording setups, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like what you said earlier, the fact that I think one of the reasons you can have so many band members who are also engineers and producers is because there's a lower barrier to entry. You know, it's yeah. almost like you had to pick a lane back then in the, in the early to mid 2000s. You were either going to be in a band or you were going to record bands because yeah. it was such an investment one way or the other in time and in gear. You know, I remember studios, You up until the mid 2000s, you had to definitely spend a lot of money and you had to really cut your teeth and try to start recording a bunch of bands quickly in order to recoup your costs. And I remember there was small studios that were opening up and they'd be open for a couple of years and then they'd bite the dust. I was in a band in the late 2000s and that's when I first started recognizing we were using Reason and Pro Tools, but we could do all of the drums on a grid, which I'm sure you've probably experimented with that before. Sure. You know, to varying degrees of, of sound quality, but we would get a skeleton of a song really quickly. I was working with a guy that was really talented in that regard. He could just really, he could create a workflow that was very seamless and very quick. And it yeah. sounded good. It sounded decent. So we would have synth sounds, we'd have synth bass, and then we'd come up with a skeleton of the song of the drums on a grid. And then we just use guitar rig, you know, an amp simulator to record an idea really quickly. Dude, yeah. And, and then we'd have a song, essentially, or a song idea that sounded kind of what it, it would eventually sound like. Yeah. And that just, that opened up a whole new door because then within a couple of months, we had 40 demos, I think. It's just evolved even more in the last 10 years, just being able to use these tools. You're seeing some SoundCloud artists who are writing 200 songs a year. They'll write a song and then just immediately release it, even if it's quote unquote wrong. You know, if a, an engineer yeah. looked at the tracks and asked, how the hell did you even record this? How did you even do this? So that's really cool. Dude, I'm super stoked to go back and listen to all your projects and really just dive deep in them. Siren Music, is that the name for the beats that you're writing and the extra yeah, soundscapes so, that you're yeah, creating? I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of like kind of rebranding myself anyway. So mm -hmm. it's not really a thing, but what Siren is basically Chelsea and I's label that we put out our music on. So it's, that's okay. our LLC is Siren, uh, is actually Siren Creative. And cool. yeah, we came up with that name partially because of like that, um, the Dangerous Summer Song Siren. Um, okay, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's one of the ones on Warpaint that I was like super proud of my parts and you know, like that was, it was a, uh, Siren was actually a working title for that song, but because my guitar sounded like a siren in the beginning, like the intro mm -hmm. and AJ was like, yeah, it sounds like a siren. So, <laughs> I mean, so cool, dude. Then that, that song, the guitars are just so rad. Yeah. Yeah. We just like, and then he just kept the name and I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's kind of cool. Maybe I, you know, I sound like a siren and it just kind of stuck with me for forever. And then when we we're thinking about like LLC names. We were like, oh, Siren Creative. That sounds like super dope. You know? Yeah, it's perfect. It's a great name. Yeah, for sure. And it, it can be like an umbrella for a lot of different projects, right? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so I have a SoundCloud. I think it's um, SoundCloud slash Siren dash beats. Okay. That, like, that's like all the beats that I put out and I've like put them on BeatStars for, for sale. So like they, they're able to be licensed for youtube music or anything like that or for artists that want to use them so i'll like right. sell them yeah and then siren-samples.com is where you can find my sample pack and very um, cool and then all violette stuff is at who's violette instagram facebook at who is violette i like uh, that v-i-o-l-e-t-t-e -T -T -E. yeah dude who is violette i love it it's very intriguing <laughs> just begging the listener to come check it out yeah seriously that's a great way to brand <laughs> thanks man yeah dude well i don't want to take up too much more of your time i appreciate you talking to me today i have one more question you know you can be as detailed or as not detailed as you want i want to be respectful of you and the situation in which you sort of found yourself in but i just for my own personal curiosity when did you part ways with the dangerous summer and what happened there exactly so you know, i don't want to get too much into like what exactly happened but I parted ways with them in uh, 2012, and part of it was... So it was before it was before the Golden Record? Yeah, so we were actually writing a little bit for that record. I, I don't know how many songs they actually used. I think the one song they used was, like, Knives, and then AJ had a couple demos that we hadn't really, like, messed with yet. Mm -hmm. And, and like, it, Cody was actually living at my house at the time, 
So there was just like a moment where like I had to like just split off. And I was actually already writing the Dreamcatcher record uh, mm -hmm. with Chelsea and Craig, who was the bassist. So in my room, we were literally like demoing that stuff out, like recording it. And then in the other room, in Cody's room, like literally across the hall, I would go in there and start to write Dangerous Summer stuff. And I just found that like creatively, it really came down to like a creative decision. Obviously, there was like some personal stuff going on. But mm -hmm. in the end, it was like just a creative decision because I like felt like I was doing so much more with Dreamcatcher that I wanted to do. And I felt like the Dangerous Summer stuff, I was like not feeling it as much. I felt like my musical taste was like going somewhere else. I, you know, I was listening to a lot of um, what was like all the stuff like Passion Pit and, mm -hmm. and Phoenix and MGMT and all these, these bands and like uh, churches was coming out at the time. So I was getting sure. into like a lot more pop music and kind of like the indie stuff. Yeah, and, and synthy. And, uh, yeah. A lot of that, sense. Yeah, that Dangerous Summer record came out like really heavy, mm -hmm. which was cool. I liked that stuff too. We were listening to like a ton of like brand new at the mm -hmm. time. I don't really listen to them anymore because of like all that stuff that happened. But, sure. That's totally yeah, fair. Hard for me to listen to. I, like, it's funny because Craig actually has like a Deja tattoo. You know, mm -hmm. we were super into them and the, but the Dreamcatcher record came out a lot like that too. Came out a lot like that brand new stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So like we were like heavily influenced by that at the time. So I don't know. Yeah. That was kind of what happened. I just like decided I had to get Cody to move out of my house somehow. <laughs> and so like having them, having him move out and stuff and they were moving to california so i was just like yeah i'm not doing that i'm gonna stick around in maryland and do this okay the other guys were moving to california at that time yeah yeah <laughs> it was just a it was a weird time man like yeah yeah weird time indeed i mean that was around the you said the 2012 mark i feel like 2011 2012 was sort of an, a weird transitional period for music in general you did have a lot of bands kind of coming onto the scene that were definitely different and working their way to where we are now, where you've got a lot of bands who are modern and fresh sounding, but it still harkens back to some of the early 90s, late 80s, synthy, indie, yeah. for lack I of a better to go term. back to like, like, eventually I always just want, ended up back like at my mainstream 90s self, you know? Okay. Like something about that was like, you know, like with, with Chelsea, like we want to sound like Alanis Morissette, you know, and... And all that stuff. And then there's all these new bands that have come out that are like, we're just so about them, like Muna and the Japanese house and all that stuff. When you hear like the new, her new EP that we just did, uh, I think you're going to hear a lot of that kind of stuff. That, kind that of sounds great. Five kind of sound, you know. I'm into it. I love female vocals. I, I'm just a huge, huge fan of female vocals. And I love and I all of everyone these. Everyone I listen to now is female vocals, to be honest with you. Like, That's I cool. I, yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. So going back to you exiting the dangerous summer was there part of you internally i know it was a long time ago but is there part of you that felt there was writing on the wall maybe turmoil within the band members did you see them breaking up shortly after that or did that have anything to do with your decision for leaving the band i kind of did i don't know like i really don't know like where they went kind of after obviously like uh, like so ben cato like who joined the band just as i was leaving and Matt from The Graduate, they like joined the band just as I was leaving. So I think Ben was actually like in the band like the day I was out of the band. So like wow. they, we'd, they were like looking for a drummer. I remember we were like filming like a documentary. I remember when I came to the realization, like we were on tour, we were on this tour. It was going like kind of, it was just going kind of bad. We were touring with um from Indian Lakes and they were just like, they were coming, they were up and coming and they were so good. And we were just like sloppy on this tour and Chelsea was on the tour. And I remember mm -hmm. like we were filming like this, this documentary with our friend and I was doing an interview for it. And I, I knew I was like lying right to the camera's face about like, I'm going to be in this band like forever. Like I, I was so naive when I was young to think that like things like that, that come on so quick, sometimes things that come on so quickly, you know, they don't really last like that, you know? It's, mm -hmm. it's hard because like when you start a band, you have no idea what you're doing. Like, you know, like it, before, it was like before we knew it, stuff was going on. I was, I was listening to your other podcast that the, the last one you put out where you were talking about like getting on Warped Tour. Mm -hmm. And like, that was like, 
it was so instant that it was just like all of a sudden everything's happening and I didn't know how to deal with it really like I like they were running the band like the other guys were running the band and I was just like there for the ride and when I finally like realized like how much I had missed then I was like well I'm not in control of anything it's all these guys are in control of my whole life Mm -hmm. and I can't deal with that because like they keep quitting you know like members would quit all the time and like all that stuff and that always that continued it wasn't like you know, only because of that band. When when Chelsea and I started Dreamcatcher, there was like that going on. And sure. like, I feel like over the course of time, like we had this dream of being in a band, but like it it doesn't hold water, you know? Like you have to eventually say like, you know, and people get older too and like they have lives and, you know, they don't have the same ambitions that you do. So you mm-hmm. have to like put yourself in a position where like you can... I mean, how do I say it? You have to put yourself in a position where you know you have control over your own destiny, basically. And with that band, I just didn't. Like, it was all being controlled for me. Okay. Yeah. No, I, that makes perfect sense, dude. So I think what you're... There's this word that I've been using lately, and it wasn't a word that I really knew. I didn't know the exact meaning for a long time. But now that I know the meaning, it's it's one of those words. It's almost like a buzzword for me. And the word is autonomy. You wanted autonomy. You wanted some ownership over the direction that your life was headed in. Yeah. And I'm sure when you were young, you guys started the band in 2005 or 2006? Uh, yeah, it was like, yeah, probably it's 2006. 2006. And Reach for the Sun came out in 2008, 2009? 2009. Yeah. So, and you guys had a successful EP before that. I remember the EP, I was working at a job and we listened to Pandora. Mm-hmm. And I remember the song with the delayed guitars. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name. The permanent oh, Rain. Permanent Rain, yeah. The Permanent Rain played all the time on Pandora on this station. And I loved that song. The guitars would come in. And I remember hearing that just all the time. They just loved playing that song. It was almost as if we were listening to the radio and that was the biggest single at the time because it was almost on rotation. And I can't remember what station we were listening to, but I would imagine you guys started the band in 2006. And then within a couple of years, streaming was still relatively new and it's playing the permanent rain over and over and over again. It probably was lightning quick and you guys were so young that it was probably, you know, 2009 to 2012 really in the grand scheme of things isn't very much time so it was probably a moment where you were just being reflective you were getting a little bit older you were coming into your own and you just wanted some autonomy you wanted some ownership in what you were doing yeah i mean like yeah it's just weird because like that that song that was like one of the first songs we wrote so it was on the ep and it actually like blew like that's what kind of got us signed basically all time low kind of like helped us out like we mm-hmm. met them like randomly at a guitar center and it was Ryan, the drummer. And mm-hmm. we just like gathered up the courage to like go. Like I remember it was me because I was just shameless me at the time. Like that would just walk up to anybody and say like, Hey, check this out. And we got in my car and like listened to like instrumental demos. And I think permanent rain had some vocal over it that we mm-hmm. were recording with Paul at the time. And Ryan was like, Holy shit. And you know, that just like, it just, we were signed within a year. So like in 2006, wow. like we put out the EP and then by 2007, we were putting out the EP, re-releasing it on the label. So that's incredible. Yeah. And Dude, kudos to you. Like, Thank you for, Oh, sorry. I was going to say that that song, like it blew up on MySpace randomly because that was when like on MySpace, you were able to post your song, post songs on your page and all mm-hmm. of our friends did it with permanent rain. So like so it just cool. exploded. Like there wasn't a MySpace page you could go on like in our group of friends that didn't have that song. So like wow. it was weird. That was kind of how that song like blew up, I think. At first. Pretty cool. It's a great yeah. song. Is it something you reflect back on now and you think, yeah, I'm I'm happy I went through that. I'm happy I experienced that and I'm proud of that. Oh, definitely. Like that I mean, the guys in the band like obviously like for for everything that happened, I still like respect them and and they, they taught me like so much about like myself and like, and helped me like find my sound, you know, and continue mm-hmm. in a way that I could continue to like evolve. 
Okay. So that's what, that's what I, and obviously like the, the touring and stuff like that. You mentioned uh, that you talked to Jono. I listened to that podcast of yours too. And like that Thanks, was one man. of my favorite tours uh, out in Europe and England. Um, mm-hmm. That was like one of our biggest tours. So that was like, that was awesome. That Super that cool. Awesome. He was a great guy. I've talked to his brother a couple of times too, and they just seem like the nicest, most down to earth dudes. I really yeah. appreciated him. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Well, good for you. And it seems like you've really come into your own. And now there's this emboldening effect where you do feel a lot of autonomy because I would imagine you're going to be off to the races. You're going to be creating a lot of art and music in the coming years and months and things. So I'm stoked to hear it all. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Again, man, thank you for giving me your time today. I really appreciate it. You know, time is the most important element, especially these days. Well, I got a lot of it, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, cool, man. Well, I'll definitely be looking out for future projects. Violet, you guys have a new EP coming out. Are you guys going to start releasing singles for that? Probably early next year, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, pretty soon. We just got the mixes back and we're just waiting on like just getting all the visuals done and then we'll start releasing it. Okay, cool. And if people want to get a hold of you for production or recording or composing songs, should they just yeah. hit you up on all the socials? Yeah, oh, my email is uh, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Zap, C-Z-A-P at gmail.com. And you can just email me and then I'll get you in touch with uh, my manager and they'll uh, get you sorted out. That's awesome, man. I look forward to hearing more Brian Zap recordings and production. Dude, yeah, going to make a lot of music this year, I hope. Hell yeah, man. Yeah, may as well, right? Yeah, why not? All right, buddy. Well, you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks again for doing this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thanks All right, a lot. buddy. All right, man. Well, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon, okay? All right, yeah. Talk to you soon. All right. See you, buddy. I love when you.